This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Lomi Patel is the Vice President of Growth at IMVU, and he's also the author of the new book, Lean AI, which is part of Eric Reese's The Lean Startup series. On this episode of Marketing Trends, Lomit joins us to share his experiences using AI to create more efficiency on his growth and marketing teams. And he discusses why he thinks now was the right time to write this book to help other young businesses see the power of AI. Enjoy the conversation. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. We bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, host of Marketing Trends, and we are in downtown San Francisco, and I'm with special guest Loma. What's going on? Doing great, Ian. How you doing? It is great to have you on the show today. We're going to be talking about some really cool stuff, your background, um, what you're doing with growth, and the book that you just wrote, Lean AI, which is part of Eric Reese's Lean Startup Series. Um, it's out now. So people will be able to check it out. Uh, I am so excited to talk about all things Lean AI and how it shapes the marketing universe. But first, how did you get started in marketing in the first place? I've always been interested in marketing from a young age. I come from a family of small entrepreneurs. And uh, one of the things I used to do when I was young was just create a lot of like uh direct mail ads and print ads for, for, for my uh, family business. And so that was kind of my first forte into sort of advertising. But when I went to college and did business, I came to realize that that I loved both, you know, the creative side of it as well as the analytical piece. And so I ended up specializing in marketing right from kind of the get-go. And so tell me a little bit about your current role. Sure. So currently I work at MVU. Um, I am the, uh, the vice president of growth. So my role primarily encompasses being responsible for all of our acquisition, uh, retention, and monetization across the entire life cycle. So basically, uh, uh, my team is responsible for how we acquire users, how, how do we figure out how to keep those users, and then how do we continue to monetize and drive revenue from those users. And for those of us who don't know, what's the what's the background for the company? Sure. So MView is actually the largest um, avatar-based social networking app. The company's been around 15 years. We started off in desktop. And uh, in the last uh, three years, we've really made a big growth coming on mobile. So we're primarily cross-platform and, and the best way to think of MVU, it's, it's a virtual reality network where people come create avatars, and then it gives them the, the ability to have these immersive social experiences. One of the kind of threads throughout this, uh, this episode will be, you know, Eric Reese uh, was, was he co-founder or the sole founder? He was uh, one of the co-founders. Yeah, yeah. of, uh, of MVU back, back in the day. Um, and your book is in the Lean Startup series, which obviously he started with with the Lean Startup, um, and it's kind of a cool thread. So, how did you how did you get connected with the company, um, and why were you excited about joining? Sure, I got connected with MVU uh, primarily uh, because I knew uh, one of the venture capitalists that was an investor at MVU. Uh, he had invested at a previous startup that I worked at very early on called Roku. And so um, when they were looking to try and make a change from transitioning from a desktop to a mobile business, um, 
I felt that was a great opportunity for me to come in because there was really a lot of runway to really be able to influence the next phase of growth here, which really excited me. Yeah, and uh, we'll get into some of that in in a little bit uh, here of of the cool things that you're doing. But I want to know, why did you decide to write Lean AI? Because this is something that... Um, you know, I, I think a lot of marketers kind of see a little need in the market, but, you know, the lean methodology, AI, uh, seem like it's it's two peas in a pod for something that really needed to be a book. And so uh, I'm curious, why did you decide to write it? So my biggest uh, reason for writing the book is that I am really passionate about the whole subject of um, leveraging AI for growth. And, um, you know, Obviously, working at MView, you know, you know, a, a big part of our DNA is all around lean startups. It's all around Tesla and Iterate, and and primarily that's the same formula that really goes into all the best growth teams that are out there too. Regardless of which company you work at, it's all about running experimentation and really figuring out what works and what doesn't work. The big difference is that you know, in this day and age, you have so much access to data, so it's really hard to really be able to figure out and surface insights as quickly as possible and take actions on those. And so at MView, you know, one of the things we started doing was really to figure out how can we get better, faster, and smarter at driving growth? Because for us at the time, mobile was a whole new channel, a whole new business. And, you know, we knew that we really wanted to win over the entire company to really believe in mobile. And so we had to start getting some wins really quickly. And the best way to do that, and it was very challenging to try and come in and build a big growth team, and so that's when we started leaning on really on um, technology primarily because we had great data and by leveraging data AI and automating a lot of the levers to enable us to execute better was really going to be the roadmap for us to be successful. And so in the book, you talk about the new age of autonomous marketing. What's autonomous marketing? So the way I define autonomous marketing is a, a good example is, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, when they, when they think of cars, you know, th- th- there seems to be words out there talking about self-driving cars, right? That's kind of the dream where you ultimately, you sit in a car, you, you, you tell it where you want to go and you kind of sit back and it will kind of get you there. I have kind of the same vision for marketing too, because ultimately when it comes to marketing, it's about everybody has a budget. And, and the question is, how do you leverage that budget to try and help your company hit uh, meet and exceed their goals. And so with autonomous marketing, a lot of that really comes down to execution around increasing your velocity of learning to really figure out what works and what doesn't work. And so by um, by automating a lot of the tasks and processes that you're really previously dependent on humans to do and, and just getting machine to do a lot of that work really increases your velocity to to be able to get to the outputs or the built business outcomes that you're trying to get to, which for us... Um, or most growth teams, there's generally KPIs around cost to acquire a customer or a return on ad spend. And so, you know, once you know what your specific goals are, you know, uh, I can see a Thomas Marketing sort of figuring out with all of the data and all, all of the different experiments you need to run to get you to those results with very minimal human interve- in, in intervention in there. Yeah, and I think I think this is a fascinating topic because I, I would say most of the marketing teams that you know, we talk to, you know, they say we run 20 experiments a week, let's say, or we run hundreds a year. But one of the things that you posit is like, 
how do you run thousands? How do you run tens of thousands of experiments? And that's kind of where you get into this, like, obviously you can't have a marketing team big enough to do that. You have to use AI and technology. And some of the biggest companies already do that. You know, Amazon, obviously, Netflix and Facebook and all of those are running and Google are running, you know, millions of experiments. But you're like, but with my little marketing team, I can't do that. Uh, so how do you kind of compete with the big folks when when they're using those things? So how can how can companies, you know, do that? How can they figure out how to run tens of thousands of uh, marketing experiments? Sure, that's a really good question. And the best way to answer that is, you know, generally, you know, before we were really able to lean on um, AI and automation uh, to really enable us to to run experiments at scale, we used to run maybe, you know, like maybe a hundred or so a month. And even that was really stretching us thin with a lean team. But once we started applying AI and machine learning and automation, we were able to pivot from that running uh, tens of thousands of experiments. But the big difference is before, you know, a lot of the experiments really came down to us on the team to really figure out what are we going to run experiments on? It was really like, like humans or, or, or myself kind of making those calls or decisions. But what we found once we were able to ha- apply AI and, and, and machine learning as well as automation into the mix, it was able to surface a whole number of different wearables that we couldn't even have figured out humanly because we didn't really have a good data science team, which a lot of the big growth teams have. So we were able to figure out, you know, not only running different wearables around bids and budgets, which would consistently change hour by hour, uh, day by day, week by week, and month by month, but also, you know, um, the whole area around personalization, which has become really important to marketers and, um, you know, for us to really get to truly executing on personalization wouldn't have been humanly possible. But now we do because now we can put a whole, we could put thousands of different creative messages out there to different audiences that we're trying to target, for example, on Google and Facebook and be able to figure out pretty quickly which message is resonating with which user at, at, at different points of their user journey. And then once we bring those users in, we're able to um, modify the user experience in the product as well as um, the messages that we hit them with once, once, once they are in our product to get them to continue to keep taking that next step to get them engaged deeper into the product that leads to better retention. That ultimately gives us the ability to, to be able to figure out how we're going to make money out of them as well. So this is pretty... Um pretty scary for the product person and for the marketer who is intentionally doing the exact opposite where they're like, I want one message to go to as many people as possible and one product that we've carefully constructed to go to that audience. Like that is, maybe that's the old way of thinking. Maybe it's just a different way of thinking. Um, I'm curious, who is making these you know, thousands of messages. Is is there a human back there? What What is their role in this? What is your marketing team's role in that type of feeding the beast with inputs? So a lot of the, um, the responsibilities on the team that I have now is, is really about figuring out, uh, as you'd mentioned, feeding the beast. And, 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 the, and the things that we can really feed into the beast, primarily a lot of the work really goes into creative because that's something that, that, that a lot of our creative... We do that in-house, but what we do is 
we're able to look at the insights on on what's working and what's not and continue to keep coming up with different iterations of that and 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 keep feeding that back into the machine and then the other part is to really figure out you know we don't want to be reliant on exactly you know what's working today we're always trying to be uh, f- uh future proof ourselves by looking ahead like 12 to 18 months what are new and emerging channels that we want to continue to keep bringing in into the mix that we can continue to test early and um so another part of the team is focused on really f- looking at new 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 growth opportunities for us another area of the team is focused all around uh, retention and engagement and CRM marketing. So, so, so one area is really on focused on new growth for pro, uh, prospecting and acquisition. Another part is about CRM and uh, retention marketing, and 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 then the third part is around monetization. Uh, which for at MView, there's two ways we can monetize users. One is through in-app purchases, where we sell MView credits that people use to actually redeem against uh, buying virtual stuff. And we have the largest uh, virtual store in the world. It's like 40 million different items. And and then the other part is advertising. So what we try to do is really figure out really early based on user behavior, where the user is going to fall into, whether we're going to be more likely to make money out of them through in-app purchases or through advertising. And then we try to um, augment the 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 personal experiences that they end up getting in the product from that point onwards. One of the things that's so exciting to me about this shift is that you can start to look at um, users in a different way where you have folks that, you know, bring money into the ecosystem versus, um, you know, the kind of refer a friend people, right? Um, Or whatever it is. Like each customer of yours can have a different unique value proposition to the community and you start to learn it's like hey you know this person doesn't make us a lot of money like they don't buy buy a lot of stuff but they always comment on other people's stuff and like that reinforces the community or they this person doesn't spend a lot of money with us but this person always shares on other social platforms or whatever it is that we can start to look at like the value proposition that your different customers bring and when you, I mean, you have a very direct relationship with with your customers, obviously. Um, but for those of us who don't have as direct of a relationship with our customers, especially like in B2B, you're really not thinking about those sort of things because you don't have enough data points and you don't really know, like you need richer, deeper uh, data than you do, you know, uh, kind of a mass, mass look at this. How do you think that, AI allows you to, well, I guess first question, like what, how do you think about the customer experience? Then we'll get into the B2B stuff. So for us, the way we think about a customer experience is that we're very fortunate because we get a huge slew of data points on the user from, from the point that they come into the product, where they came from and, and how they're interacting with the product. So that really gives us a, a really good ability to try and get, use those early signals and really figure out what's going to be the right, right experiences to, that's going to end up leading them to sticking around and sort of becoming our best lifetime value user, which to what you were saying is, you know, the user can add value to our product in a number of ways, whether it's through through spending money with us or through us monetizing them and advertising or them being actively social because ultimately we're a social network and we want people to be actively engaged in the product. So so depending on which, which of those um, uh, spectrums a user falls into, 
you know, you know, we're always building different algorithms around the data points we get on users to help us to get better and 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 smarter around how to continue to engage with those users throughout their user journey to continue to help them to do those things more for us. Well, and it seems like you really think about the journey as a long journey because yeah. they can continue to spend throughout. It's not just right. yeah, you know, they onboard and and yeah. and pay X dollars. You want to incrementally add value to them yeah. over time so that you can, you know, ultimately they can have a richer experience and, and you can make more money. So it seems like you have a very long-term thinking yeah. uh, of how you view customers. We do. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for us, the average tenure for a user, you know, if, if we get it right, we'll stick around for, for a long time, just like users that stick around on Facebook and other social networks for a long time, because ultimately it's about getting them comfortable and, 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 and helping them to experience the value proposition really quickly. But I think the other question that you had was, you know, uh, one thing that B2B companies could probably take from our experience is when I, when I first came in, we had a lot of data that was just living in silos. So we didn't really know the value of our data. So one of the first things that I ended up doing with the team was, you know, let's try to integrate all our data into one place because we had data for desktop users and then we started getting data for mobile users. But but the great thing we had is we had a unique identifier, which was a unique email address and a unique customer ID. So we were able to use that to stitch the, the user journey to really figure out, you know, what our users were doing regardless of where they were coming from. And then once we were able to put the data into one place, that's when we were able to get some of the insights that we're talking about, which is like, you know, how does a user end up end up sticking around for like twelve to eighteen months or spending you know hundreds of dollars with us? And we reverse engineered all of those user actions once we knew, uh, once we had all that data at a unique customer level, and you know that and that really sort of helped to influence a lot of the things that the different experiments that we ran. But again, humanly, a lot of that was only possible because we started applying AI into surfacing those insights because there was so much data and it was like convoluted. It was really hard for us to really, you know, figure out what made sense. And so one of, one of the things we ended up using without going too technical is unsupervised learning where you just put a lot of data into one place and you kind of let the machine sort of look at that to sort of come up with um, insights that that kind of are out of the box thinking. Yeah. And then that's, that, that, that's one that really helped us. And so a B2B company, ultimately, if you can continue to track that, because they do that, right? As you mentioned, you know, you know a, lot of, a lot of them use CRM tools, whether it's Pardo or, or something else. And so they're able to stitch and connect the dots from where users are coming in. The question is trying to aggregate it into one place. And I know, uh, you know, instead of just relying on a data science team, which it's nice if you have one, but even if you don't, you can still put a lot of that into, into the mix and let AI sort of surface and come up with insights that you might not have even thought about. We know the power of AI, and I think that you kind of clearly articulated how you can do much more with less, how marketing teams of the future... I mean, what you just described is like the... It's like the nirvana, right? It's like yeah. the marketers get to do the creative stuff, and make sense of the data that the machines are doing, right? Like that's yeah. what we all want. I think, yeah. um, you know, that's that's the that's the dream is that you know your your data science team uh, is not you know half your headcount, but maybe yeah. it's you know a, a tenth of your headcount, and you have 
marketers that are constantly sitting with customers, talking to customers, looking at information, creating things, testing in the market, like all of those things, getting feedback um, from that stuff. That sounds really exciting. Um, how do we get there? How do we build towards a lean method with lean methodology? How do we get there? Sure. So uh, the way that we ended up doing this is the good news is that, that a lot of different places where you uh, or partners that you work with have some form of AI that's built into their different platforms or products. And, you know, it really comes down to what, what are the use cases that you want to solve for initially? And so for us, you know, you know, at a high level, the, the use case that we wanted to solve for was how can we spend our budget as efficiently as possible with by trying to get more done with less with a small team. And ultimately, you know, in growth, we probably own the second largest budget um, outside of um, um, headcount. And so, you know, for us, you know, we knew if we can come up with something that can enable us to get better and smarter around um, improving the way we allocate the budget, we'll get more support for it internally. It wouldn't be an uphill battle to try and sort of make the case for bringing AI into the mix. And because the value on that isn't just short term, you can continue to see that value in five or 10 years from now, because you're always going to have ways where you need to get more customers, you need to do more with less. And, and so using that, uh, uh, using the budget as, as, as a use case, we knew that all of the different partners that we work with right now, one of the challenges we had is that for the most part, we're dependent on our partners where we're giving them our budgets and they're telling us how to like allocate it or how to spend it. And the risk is we're highly dependent on them to help, help us hit our goals. And, you know, that that's fine short term, but long term, that's a huge risk, not only to us as a team, but but to us as a business too. And that's when we started to um, to figure out if we could build our own little AI intelligent machine that sort of sits between us and all the different uh, partners that we work with, whether it's on the acquisition side or the, or the retention side or the monetization side, we would have more control because we would have a holistic view into everything that's going on because no marketer uh, is going to share all their data with any given partner. That's just too risky in this day and age. But the marketer knows exactly what's going on and how all the, all, all the different partners are compare in terms of performance to one another. And so uh, what we found was by building building a machine that is able to control the, the key levels that, that you have control over these different partners, which is around bids, budgets, creatives, and um, in terms of like um, um, the specific goals you want, you want to optimize towards. And, you know, the machine was, is, it's kind of like day trading. That's, that's the best analogy that I can think of. Cause I was, I was studying a lot of like the, the financial institutions because all of the, cause ultimately all of the trading that's done now, it's not done by humans, it's done by machines. And 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 they always have certain limits where, you know, where 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 a stop order or something will kick in if 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 it if it goes down too dramatically or whatever. And and we put the same checks and balances into the system too, so that, you know, the reality is, you know, we know we, you know, we we can shift budgets at any given time and uh, based on how different partners are doing. 
because because everything is done programmatically now. It's all an exchange. And you know, for example, if Google's not performing at any given time, and Snapchat is, we can in real time shift budgets away from budget uh, from Facebook and, and give it to Snapchat. And and just by making these micro transactions, um, just on the bid inside, you know, has enabled us to to increase our performance like three like three x. We pretty much have been able to. Uh, reduce our cost to acquire customers by 3x, and we were able to increase our return on ad spend by 3x just by making these microtransactions, which aren't humanly possible because a lot of these things are happening like 3 a.m. in the morning too. Because you know, you know, unless you want to get people working 24 hours, seven days a week, it, it's not going to be possible. And even to make those changes in real time, that's one example. The other example is just around setting up and executing all of these different campaigns with creatives. Creative is a big lever because ultimately you want to be able to figure out what's the right story to tell to the right user at the right time. But it's a big laborious task to try and get a human to continue to keep putting these different ads into the mix. So now we just come up with the ads, we just put it in, and the machine's able to fire these things out and 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 sort of figure out, for example, what's the right ad to be showing Ian based on where he is right now, based you know, um, and 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 it's and it's determining this like scoring based on like, you know, is this person, you know, is this like an A plus prospect or is it a C plus? And, and that determines how much we're willing to pay because we know if this person is potentially an A plus, we'll, we'll recoup that money back in the long term, but we'll make that money back versus somebody who's more like a C plus prospect, then, you know, we're not going to pay more, more than what we're going to end up recouping back in the long term. That's fascinating. I love the analogy that you're saying of the financial institution, because you're totally right, where I think a lot of these times, um, you know, they have, you know, whatever, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stocks that they're looking at. And like you said, that that the timing is like a minute to minute, yeah. second to second difference. Um, but in marketing, you think of like, how long our plays have been in the right. past, you're talking about extremely long just the idea that you know in print advertising you essentially have to get your creative in a month and a half in advance right, right. you you take that versus or tv or whatever it is it's like hey we got to go shoot the commercial we got to finish the commercial we got to do the post we got to get everything ready to go then we got to wait until the air date of the super bowl or whatever it is that's a long flash yeah. to bang time to figure out if it's going to work However, some of those channels work really well. So if you don't have kind of the programmatic landscape, if you, if you can do the type of stuff that you're yeah. doing on the programmatic side, it allows you to have leverage for other types of experiments that could be exponential. And, and I do want to talk about this because I think it's super, super important. The thing about programmatic is like you have a little bit of the casino approach, right? Where it's like, you can't win unless you're putting the money in. However, most of the time, you're not going to have an exponential result from that. Similar to, you know, we talk about like this, uh, the serial podcast yep. got huge and, um, and uh, there's the, you know, great ads yeah. in there, right? So stuff like that, right? Where you have, hey, I'm going to invest, you know, a hundred grand in this campaign and it's going to return 50x, you don't have that. And I think of these different, the new landscape for marketing where you have, especially on digital, 
the ability to have the always on marketing that's right. constantly adjusting with AI and you're feeding in creative inputs. And then you have the other side, which is like, what experiment could we run similar to a the way a venture fund works? What, you know, if we're going to make 10 bets, which one of these could return the money 100x? And I think that that mindset pairs up really nicely with lean startup, with like the lean approach, because it's the same sort of ideas and principles. Yeah, you bring up a really good point. And, and that's kind of the way we think about it too. You know, there's ultimately kind of your evergreen campaigns that, that have been working right now. So you want to continue to try and scale and milk those as long as possible. But you also want to be allocating like 10 to 20% of your budget into experiments, which aren't going to uh, uh, um, provide immediate returns, but have the potential to kind of meet or exceed what you're doing right now with any given channel. And that's kind of what we did um, at Enview. So one of the one one of the benefits we had was, you know, we you know because we were trying to build this whole automation system. There's a lot of partners that we were able to get into pretty early. Um, for example, Snapchat was one we worked with them like three years ago before they even had like an advertising platform for a lot of users. TikTok, we started working with them like over two years ago. I know a lot of people talk about it now, but the benefit we had was that. By being early beta users with these partners, they were able to learn from us in terms of data, but we were also able to learn how their system works as now works as well. So that, you know, once they created these APIs, we were able to automate a lot of the tasks and processes. And so now those are becoming really good channels on top of the proven channels we already have. And we're kind of using the same approach to try and identify other channels down the road. Because the reality is I come in every day with 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 the mindset, there's no guarantee we're going to have any customers today because there is no guarantee, right? You know, I mean, I mean, just look at the coronavirus and the and, and the impact that's having on businesses. So, you know, we always got to continue to 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 think of what's the next new thing that we can we can be testing and learning from. And the great thing with with our platform, just like with with Lean Startup, is we we have a methodology now where where we can put things into the mix. And before, where it might have cost us a lot more money to really uh, figure out if it was going to work or not, will cost us a lot less to get to that result and figure it out. I love that. That's and that's a great mindset for a marketer. Is uh, uh, <laughs> there might be no customers tomorrow, so you have to stay vigilant. Um, I want to talk about your time at Roku for, for a little bit because um, Roku had a really interesting problem set at the i mean would you say this is like start of streaming i mean if the streaming wars are 100 now that disney's involved it's there the wars are are raging maybe um this is a little bit earlier so i'm curious how did you what was what, what was the some of the takeaways from your time there yeah so i i started roku back in 2008 where nobody was really streaming and uh you know, it, it was right at the time where Netflix was really starting this streaming. And so Netflix was a really good partner of Roku. So we actually became like one of the platforms that really enabled them to try and um, increase their footprint into streaming. Because at the time, it was really just them that were really doing kind of the um, the streaming. And, and and the other partner that we worked with early on was Amazon. It used to be, used to be called Amazon Video on Demand. Now it's Amazon Prime. And so my role there as head of growth was great because it, I got I, I literally got to work with all of these new partners that were really thinking about streaming, uh, and so it was all about sort of bringing them on on board onto Roku. 
but doing a lot of co-marketing with them to try and get their users to adopt Roku. So that was like a really good growth channel for us. The other growth channel for us was we had to really educate the market because nobody really knew about streaming at the time. And, you know, what, and so for us, it was really trying to, I mean, the best way to do that is really leverage existing customer stories and try to try to seed those as much as possible. So we used to get great PR because it was really a hot topic and it was all, at the time anyway, people were always trying to compare us to Apple TV, which kind of worked out well for us because Apple TV was a closed ecosystem and Roku was kind of the, the opposite. We wanted to be the open system, kind of like Android versus iOS. And so we were able to attract a lot of these new um, partners that at the time Apple wasn't willing to work with. So that was another growth area of opportunity. And, and, and in the process, you know, we were able to um, really get smart around because um, all of our acquisition um, at that time was all done through digital. You know, even though, you know, we didn't have AI or whatever, we still had a lot of user data because we were able to like really get into really understanding what users were doing with their streaming habits and patterns. And we were able to like use that data to really develop deeper relationships with the different partners that we worked with, as well as figure out how we could try to bring in, you know, new users to try and adopt to Roku. But ultimately, you know, you know, a good growth channel for Roku really ended up coming down to what I think you had mentioned earlier, word of mouth. Because once you get people in and you delight them, they end up becoming our biggest evangelist to start telling their friends about Roku. Yeah, I remember um, this is back. I was listening to to Adam Carolla's podcast, uh, and he I forget who the guest was um, that he had on, but he would always he had an ad read that he would do, and he would always say Roku like in kind of a funny way, um, but basically like you know you could get something. I have no idea what his podcast was doing back then, but it was probably a top 15 podcast in the world, probably. Right. Um, and like those type of, like, I, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I love podcasts, but but those type of endorsements at that time, I, I always think about like consumer tech is like, or consumer products like that are so important to spread word of mouth because it's like, it's a natural conversation starter where you're like, oh, I was listening to, you know, Adam Carolla today and he was talking about Roku. You know, you, you're like, say that to your spouse and you're like, I should, maybe I should look into this thing or whatever. Like those, I think exponentially, that's like an exponential bet in my opinion, because it, it, it puts so much, it puts so much gasoline on the fire of the marketing that you're already doing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for us, ultimately, uh, you know, it was all about seeding as many influential people as possible to to try the product. And, you know, we never really paid for any of these endorsements. It was all, um, you know, just, uh, uh, you know, try it out. And, and the great thing is that, you know, a lot, you know, a lot of people that, that want to be early adopters, Roku was really one, one of the few ways you could really get into streaming. So yeah. it, was, it was kind of a great partnership you know where it made sense for them to try roku but ultimately you know i you know i feel like when it comes to influencers or any growing any business you still got to have a great product and we had a, an amazing product at roku and you know you know clearly being one of the first movers in the whole category we were able to perfect that product i was able to see that product evolve from being one product to being many different SKUs over time but the whole tenant in terms of how we thought about marketing there in the early days 
was all about value, simplicity, and contents. It was all about it was all about keeping the price as low as possible so we could continue to bring in more users and and get a bigger footprint. Simplicity to try and keep the product so easy to use that you didn't have to be, for example, you know, very tech savvy to use it. And and if you if you look at all the Roku products, that's it's a really simple, uh, remote, so simple, very yeah. simple. And then and then we knew our biggest advantage over Apple was going to come down to content. So you know, instead of being limited on partners, we tried to be the open ecosystem. And you know, when I was there, I mean, we had you know a couple of thousand partners. Now I know it's like way more than that. Yeah. Well, look at the Fire Stick. I mean, you yeah. want to talk about simplicity of design. Yeah. Like yeah. this is one of those funny things that you look back on the remote that you used to have. I mean, the, the fact that there was a product called a universal remote that yeah. you would go buy yeah. that would control all of your you know, yeah. devices. And it was just this massive, huge thing. And now like, I don't, um, yeah, I'm a cord cutter or whatever. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, we have a Fire Stick and it's like this tiny little remote, I, you lose it all the time because it's so yeah. small. But the simplicity of the navigation and using that type of navigation is like now so ingrained. You think about it, it's so ingrained. Every platform has this type of, you know, beautiful navigation. It's colorful. There's yeah. all the images of the shows. Yeah. It's like, what a, what a brilliant design. I mean, I mean, one of the hardest things with selling hardware is trying to sort of create a beautiful looking device, right? That's one challenge. But the other, but the other challenge and the more important challenge is, is trying to influence the user experience. And, and, you know, I feel that, you know, a lot of hardware products that, that, that are software enabled have the advantage like Roku, because you keep continue to keep doing software updates where you can continue to test different user interfaces. And ultimately, you know, w where we got to now and where we started, we had the same philosophy around just running a series of A-B tests, really figure out, you know, what's the, the simplest way to present content and, you know, the, the good news is that, I mean, it's very similar to where Netflix ended up too, right? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, you look at, uh, other than the autoplay, which yeah. is like the biggest travesty of yeah. all time. Um, <laughs> it really is. So they, I, I'm sure they have data that supports that it's that it works for them in some way. Yeah. But this is like one of those, uh, again, I maybe it's like the old man, you know, yelling at the cloud thing, but... Um, why would you autoplay video and sound immediately for every single thing if like half your users absolutely hate it, but it drives revenue for the other half? Like, you know, I don't know. Maybe they just have enough sticking power. I don't know. The best way to answer that is that they only do it if it works, right? Yeah, no, exactly, <laughs> right? right? Yeah, and... Uh, and and that kind of helps sort of. But it's worse for me. Yeah, yeah, it's worse worse for me too because because ultimately that that's kind of what creates the whole binge watching syndromes, right? Yeah. But like the fact that you just scroll over something for like a flash second yeah. and that it plays automatically, yeah. like they have to have user feedback that that doesn't work because yeah. it's it's too annoying. Like, yeah. I just if just keep it in the thumbnail, don't go into yeah. the whole screen, I think that they're trying to limit your focus. So it's like you expand your focus into one thing at a time. Yeah. And I'm sure it drives more downloads. But um, like you said, it's definitely working, but it's yeah. super annoying. But and but I bring that up because I think it's an important thing for marketers where it's like, and Eric, Eric Reese said this famously of yeah. like, you know, you can 
if you continue the AB test forever, yeah. you will finally, you'll get to a place where it's adult content, right? Like, that's, <laughs> like that's at the end of the day, the clicks right. will continue. And you see right. this, and we talk about it on the show. Yeah. You see this with some of the ads, like on like ESPN.com and stuff, places like that, where like, I don't ever need to see the ads on ESPN that are like, you know, people in bathing suits and right. whatever it is, yeah. you know, trying to sell me some article about, you know, the worst 15 plastic surgery failures. Like I don't ever need to see that, but I have no op opportunity to opt out of that. Yeah. Like, I don't even know how I would. Right. Yeah. So there is a certain amount of like, yeah, a bunch of people want to watch, you know, train wreck videos, but that yeah. doesn't mean that that's the thing that we should always serve people. I think what you're bringing up is a really good point, which is ultimately, you know, um, finding the balance, right. Between, you know, what works, but what is socially responsible. And, you know, if I can kind of pivot that quickly back to AI in terms of one of the challenges with, with AI is, you know, like once you kind of do a lot of this autonomous marketing, there's a risk that you can completely sit back and, and, and you could end up like having messages or targeting people um, that might be completely off brand for you as a business. But, but the way we've kind of got around that is, you know, we continue to always look at the algorithms that are happening and we always try to like, at least have some human oversight into making sure that that we're not interjecting any biases or anything like that that could potentially, you know, um, go against the values of the business. What's one of your favorite campaigns that you've ever done? So for me, um, as we started talking about Roku, you know, um, at Roku, I you know I felt one one of the campaigns that we did that was kind of fun was kind of our first forte into like offline. And it was um, coming up with um, billboards and doing um, some, some local uh, station takeovers in, in, in certain markets and print and radio. But it was all around the whole um, um, tagline around keep streaming America. So the idea was to continue to like get people to keep streaming. And we kind of did it right around the time where the, um, where the, uh, the election was going on. And I think it was, I think it was a 2012 election at the time. It was, it was right when um, Barack Obama uh, was running for, the, for his first term. But what, what I enjoyed about it was ultimately, because everybody has, even this day and age, different views on politics and everything else. But we tried to like bring the country together by talking about, it doesn't matter which way the results go, you can keep streaming and keep having fun. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and so we even had like billboards done, like based on you no, know, like if 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 President Obama had won or if of of or if uh, uh, McCain had won, to try and turn it into like doesn't really matter about that, but you can keep streaming and you know, yeah, keep having fun, <laughs> <laughs> keep escaping. Yeah, um, I love it. That's great. So I, I want to know. Um, yeah, last point about the book, Lean AI, which everybody should check out. Um, is it theleanai.com? Um, so the website is theleanai.com, but it's um, all over Amazon now too. So if you do a search for Lean AI, it will come up. So everybody should check it out. But I want to know, so this is part of the Lean Startup series. Um did you how did it work? Did you have to talk to Eric about, hey, I want to do this thing? Like how did how did it kind of come about? I was thinking about writing a book for a while and it's just like anything else, you know, you know, I feel that everybody has a book inside of them, but, but the, ch the challenge to, to write in a book is really, 
is to really figure out, you know, what you want to write about and get started. And then the second hardest part to write in a book is trying to finish it. Right? So there's so many like books that have started have never been completed. It's a great point. And, and so, you know, uh, I was fortunate working at MVU, you know, you know, Eric is one of the co-founders and, you know, I was able to connect with him um, through that connection. He, he had preview into what what we've been doing. And, you know, I told him kind of a high level of, you know, um, the success that we've been having and how it was kind of connected to a lot of the things that he had um, talked about in the original Lean Startup. Because a lot of people, I don't know if they realize, but w when Eric wrote the, the original Lean Startup, a lot of that was really based on his experience on coming up with the minimal viable product at MVU. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's what I mean. It's like, yeah. it's, it's coming, f uh, it's maybe coming full circle. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, you know, he and I kind of talked, because the reality is, you know, just creating a great product isn't going to guarantee success for any business, let alone a startup. Because once you, once you have a good product or product market fit, you still have to really figure out how you're going to acquire customers and how you're going to figure out how to, how to make money. Cause that, and that's where my book, Lean AI, comes in because it comes from, from the perspective of you know, whether you have a growth team or you have a marketing team, but a big focus is really going to be on driving results and, and, and how can you leverage AI and machine learning to really do a lot of the things that Lean Startup talked about, but really doing it at a much higher velocity to increase that velocity of learning so that you can be able to uh, to automate a lot of the tasks and processes and be able to execute thousands of different experiments, which for any marketing team, regardless of size, isn't humanly possible because it requires so much headcount and cost. Most startups can't do that. And, and you know, with Lean, Lean AI, the other, the other part, that, that it helps with is it ultimately reduces the risk for a venture capitalist because because when VCs are investing into early startups, it, it's a risk at that stage. It's a huge risk because you kind of bet in on kind of the team and the idea. But with Lean AI, it enables you to really take that idea and really figure out quickly, is this really going to work in terms of are customers really going to adopt to this the way you would, the way that you had anticipated so that, you know, it ultimately leads to uh, re to reducing the risk for the VCs and and for founders, which my vision is really it's it's going to lead just like the lean startup led to a whole new way of companies were going to um, create products. This is going to be a whole new way of how companies are going to go about to acquire customers. Well, if you think that distribution is a commodity, is becoming more and more commoditized, then clearly the way that you reach those people is more about efficiency than it is about, you know, the channel, right? I, or well, it's, it's both, Yeah. but it's about, okay, well, if I want to, if I know that there's, I mean, channel creep is like beyond, yeah. we're way beyond that point. CMOs, brand new CMOs. If you sat them down and you said, Hey, you have a million dollar a month budget. What are you going to spend it on? Tell me the channels. Like, I mean, they're going to be, yeah, it is the question, right? Yeah. So, a, if you have machines helping you choose which ones. Yeah. B, if you have machines helping you tell which bids you should be making yeah. in real time on which segments of customers and all that stuff. That's part of it. And then the other part is, you can, you can buy your way to growth, as we've seen with a lot yeah. of startups. 
you can absolutely just spend your way to the top of right. whatever it is. Yep. Um, the problem is, do you have a profitable machine that can allow you to continue to make those bets and keep spinning the wheel? But you, I mean, it it is true. Like their audience is there. There's whatever a billion people on Facebook. There's you know three hundred whatever 50 million on twitter there's you know snapchat and yeah. tiktok and all these other things they're out there um but the question is are you spending that money efficiently on your you know customer profile that's actually going to spend money with you right and and that's ultimately what the um you know uh the idea around lena is ultimately to help you to get better faster and smarter and using that budget to propel you to drive the growth and 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 to try and hit the the different goals that that, that measure success for your business and and reduce the risk in, in doing that. And you know, just to add to one other thing that you mentioned, you know, in this day and age, before we were marketers, we're customers and we know how much we get bombarded with different ads, right? So 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 getting user attention is getting so much more challenging, which is why the better you can get at at trying to trying to capture users' attention by coming up with ads which are either personalized or can break through that clutter, the bigger your chances are of being successful. Let's get into the lightning round. These questions are fast and easy. Just like Marketing with Salesforce, Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce. Salesforce brings marketing and engagement together. You can learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. Put your customer at the center of every interaction. Salesforce.com slash marketing. Lightning round questions. Lomit, are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, what app on your phone is the most fun? So for me, um, I usually spend most of my time on my podcast app because hey I now. commute a lot. So, you know, it's uh, it, it's where I get a lot of good information. So you listen to the show, so you know the lightning round questions already. I'll have to, I'll have to mix it up. What was the business that your family was in uh, in the early days that you were creating ads for? Sure. Um, so my parents used to have a... Um, a wine store. Oh, no kidding. So, so it was a uh, it was it was a retail business. Um, yeah. Where was that? It was in London. Oh, great. Yeah. What's the best if you have one day in London? What 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 should I, I've I've been to London once, so I've done some of the uh, a bunch of the uh, like kind of touristy stuff, but non touristy London thing that I should do. So non touristy, you know, I feel you know, London is is kind of a melting pot of different like. Uh, um, people from different places so you you know depending on on on, on uh, kind of uh, interested in you know you can find foods from all over the different world different places in the world so you know london is really famous for indian food if you like indian food there's a I lot of great a lot of great and normally the best places to go are are, are the cheapest the, the dives so to speak <laughs> what is your favorite podcast tv show book that you've read or listened to or watched recently so outside of marketing trends, because okay. I am actually a, a, an avid listener, um, another podcast that I listen to is called On Purpose, um, which mm. is more around um, kind of mental health as well. So I like to listen to that. Hidden talent or passion? I start off by saying I used to be, but I mean, I still love playing soccer, but yeah. but 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 I was a pretty um, very competitive soccer player, played through pretty much through high school and broke my legs oh jeez about six seven years ago so i've had to take a little easy but but outside of that i love to travel too so you know every every year i want to try to visit a different country i've sort of been to at least over 40 different places but there's a lot lot more to explore well 
That's it. That's all we got for today. Everybody check out Lean AI, the leanai.com. Um, great book. You're going to love it. Loma, thanks for coming on. Any final thoughts? Um, no, thanks for having me, Ian. This is great. You know, I always listen to your voice, so it's great <laughs> to see you in person. <laughs> With the mustache today, yeah. uh, nobody knows about it, but uh, yeah. but it's uh, probably leaving soon. So thanks again. Thank you. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. Discover marketing built on the world's number one CRM, Salesforce. Put your customer at the center of every interaction. Automate engagement with each customer and build your marketing strategy around the entire customer journey. Salesforce, we bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com marketing. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.